and when we invoke Rambo, um, I talk about him in the book because I talk about the Rambo sense of justice that we have around um, violent crimes like the ones that Lee committed. We have this idea that someone should just take that person and out person out. And what's also interesting is that every time, every time there is a violent crime in the media, people often say, what we need are more people with guns. What we need are more people who are armed, who have a sort of Rambo kind of um, ability to take that person out. And Rambo, to, to harken back to that, is to harken back to um, a legacy of Vietnam about how some people cannot be rehabilitated in any kind of way. Paisley Rechdahl of the University of Utah is my guest. She's the author of The Broken Country on Trauma, Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. Progressive Spirit is next. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. I have a lot of friends who are Vietnamese American, and what's interesting is when the Ken Burns documentary came out, and we've been all watching it and talking about it, Online, a lot of them voiced some similar complaints, which is, once again, you know, this is a massive war that relocates nearly a million people, and it's, you know, that relocation is treated in four minutes um, of mm -hmm. film time. And so that sense of constantly not quite being in the public eye and yet having paid a tremendous price for actions that America took abroad, I think is something that creates this, this, this long-simmering anger and frustration. Paisley Rechdahl is the author of a book of essays, The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, and four books of poetry, A Crash of Rhinos, Six Girls Without Pants, The Invention of the Kaleidoscope, and Animal Eye. She's won numerous prizes uh, for her poetry. Her poems and essays have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, American Poetry Review, the Kenyan Review, uh, the New Republic, Tin House, Best American Poetry Series on NPR. She teaches at uh, the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, where she's also the creator and editor of the community web project Mapping Salt Lake City. In May of 2017, she was named Utah's Poet Laureate, and her latest book, uh, released in September 2017, is a book-length essay, The Broken Country on Trauma, Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam, and that's the book we're going to discuss today. She's with me via Skype from Salt Lake. Welcome, Paisley, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you so much for having me. Your story begins uh, with uh, a violent act, a stabbing uh, at a marketplace in Salt Lake City in a parking lot. Uh, can you set this up for us, how this event, uh, and tell us how this event impacted you? Yes. Um, well, it was, in some ways, by American standards, it's a very small crime, but it really struck me because I was living in Vietnam in Hanoi at the time. But essentially, um, a young, at that time, 32-year-old Vietnamese American man who had been a post-1975 refugee um, to the United States purchased a knife at a Smith's Marketplace uh, grocery store near my house where I often shop, walked outside and began stabbing specifically white young white men around his age while yelling about um, the Vietnam War. Um, that's what all of the bystanders who were interviewed later said, that they felt that he was specifically doing this as some sort of um, retribution for the Vietnam War. And as I said, I had been living in Hanoi at the time, and I read about the account on Facebook via an illegal VPN, because Facebook is illegal in Vietnam. And uh, one of the people he had stabbed was an English major at the University of Utah where I teach. And so some colleagues who had had him in class were posting about this. And I thought it was such a strange and unusual crime. 
um, that I became a little obsessed, well, actually quite obsessed with the crime. Um, I had been living also by the Vietnam Military History Museum and was going and visiting there um, very frequently to look at a particular memorial or art piece of art, essentially, that was composed of French and American planes shot down during the um, conflicts with um, France and the United States. And I'd never seen anything like that. And I'd never thought that much about the legacy of the Vietnam War, but this crime started to make me consider what it means uh, when we say a war is over and what it means to memorialize a war and how it is that maybe we memorialize wars in ways that go beyond the conventional and expected ways that we remember war. And you mentioned uh, post-1975 refugee. I, I think that that was important, too, because there are really a, a number of waves of refugees that came from Vietnam. Can you uh, tell us about that and, and what was, uh, for being a post-75 refugee, he really wasn't in the war at all. Uh, I'm thinking of Kiet Tan Lee. Yes. Uh, Lee would not have been born um, or experienced the war. He was born in 1978. Mm -hmm. um, and post-1975, when Saigon fell in April of 1975 and our um, involvement in the Vietnam War supposedly ended, there were about three different waves of refugees that fled from Southeast Asia. Um, the first wave was right at the fall of Saigon. They tended to be um, in general, wealthier, better connected, had um, ties to the U.S. military and government. They were often the fighters um, uh, from the South Vietnamese Army. Um, and they came over and their re relocation experience was perhaps a little bit, quote unquote, easier, um, though it was certainly not easy, but they, they had more resources available to them. The second and third waves um, were the waves that we would um, commonly call boat people. So the later 70s and early 80s basically had two waves of people that included um, much poorer um, Southeast Asian uh, refugees, uh, people from farmlands, farming communities, people who had um, fewer literacy skills. It also included many Cambodians, Laotians, um, people fleeing, fleeing the Khmer Rouge, um, the third wave came over in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s, and um, even sometimes the late 80s. Uh, and they comprised, uh, a, again, more uh, farmers, people who were living in rural areas, children who uh, were of mixed descent, what they call the Amerasians, and then people who were fleeing, essentially, um, or just leaving the re-education camps um, that they had been forced into by the North Vietnamese after um, North Vietnam won the war. Um, so these are people who had experienced torture, extreme poverty, difficult um, social uh, experiences in Vietnam, and they had a harder time readjusting and relocating to the United States. They often spent longer times in refugee camps um, as people struggled to find homes. And they also entered, this is important, I think, they entered into an American society that had largely changed, too, in its attitudes around Southeast Asian refugees. You know, right after Saigon fell, uh, Americans largely felt rightly so, responsible for um, the fate of the South Vietnamese. These were our allies. They fought in the war, um, obviously, uh, alongside of us. And um, women and children were often being, you know, shown on television as the most vulnerable um, to, of course, what was going to happen. And so, um, the the sympathies that Americans felt for the South Vietnamese were very strong. That changed by the time that the second and third wave um, came to the United States. Uh, public sympathy had largely dropped off, uh, in part for a variety of reasons, but um, a lot of people saw the South Vietnamese as taking up a lot of uh, welfare resources, taking up housing that other veterans were not also um, privy to. Um, they, were in, they were seen as being in direct competition with lower income uh, American soldiers um, returning from war and the lower income Americans in general. And, you know, the the public sentiment had turned to the point where I think um, the relocation experience of someone like uh, Kit Tan Lee and his family, well, they would have experienced far more racism. They would have experienced uh, far more distrust um, and a sort of public moral exhaustion um, upon their arrival, I think. And so 
when he's uh, Ket Tan Lee in 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 the, in the um, stabbing event is speaking about um, really the the people he's attacking, and they're just random people. Uh, they're symbolic, really, for him of uh, how uh, they hurt his country. But in the also right in there, you're trying to figure this out in your book, and and what what is really causing this trauma that he has? That it's more than simply uh, a psychological problem within him himself, uh, or a violent uh, personality, or something that that he is trying to put together uh, a narrative of his experience uh, of a person who's really lost a country or doesn't know where his country is. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. I mean, essentially, we could on one level look at Lee's crime in a very simplistic way. We say we can we can understand it because he had problems with drug and alcohol addiction and we can understand it because he had mental health issues. And yet I think to do that and to dismiss him as a diagnosis misses the larger historical resonance of um, how he became both of these things, a drug addict with mental health problems on the one hand, but also the fact that he is clearly using um, symbolic metaphoric language to describe essentially how he how he has experienced history. Um, And in that, he's no different than us. We have turned Vietnam into a metaphor. We use it all the time. Uh, Vietnam, of course, really just refers to a country. And yet when we refer to Vietnam, I think the average American will immediately think of war. Um, And what that war means, of course, changes according to the way in which um, the context of that metaphor appears. So when we say we don't want to make Iraq or Afghanistan another Vietnam, what we could be meaning is anything from uh, a a disastrous proxy war fought fought on someone else's shores, Um, you know, a a terrible way of treating our veterans upon their return, Um, or even the idea of how that civil unrest or the, the, the war affected basically civil rights movements in the United States, leading to a sense of civil unrest at home. So it, it's a very rich kind of metaphor. And I would argue that Lee is actually similarly using a fairly rich symbolic language in turn, and one that has been very much shaped by um, American media. I mean, one a historical way of, of him using this metaphor of Vietnam is that, of course, he was South Vietnamese. He was not North Vietnamese. So when he says, you killed my people, why did you kill my people? And and is, you know, acting in these ways, he's sort of symbolically taking on the um, North Vietnamese historical position that he would imagine himself and his family as being the opposition and not the allies of the the United States. Um, And part of that, I think, is due to the fact that the experiences he might have had being forced to, quote unquote, assimilate once he came here is that he was sort of placed in a position as seen as a perpetual outsider, a perpetual foreigner, and potentially um, a kind of threat. He represented the other side, even though his family never was part of that other side. Um, and I'm really fascinated by that. And I think that the ways in which we speak to each other often rely on such rich and complex metaphors. So while he may have no um, no easy, uh, maybe he, he, well, I should say, maybe he can be diagnosed easily. I think he's not diagnosed or understood historically in very easy terms. I'd like you to, to, to read a passage from your book. It, it includes the the title of, of your book, Broken Country. I'm speaking with Paisley Rechdahl, author of The Broken Country, on trauma, a crime, and the continuing legacy of Vietnam. And, and we're talking about, in, in a sense, being um, and, and, and displaced. And I'd like you to, to read a passage. Uh, this is on page 49 that uh, uh, talks a little bit about to what it means to be a refugee. In the refugee community, war marks time. It cleaves it as it divides a family's life into events that happened before the war or after the war. In some families, it splits personalities, the father the child had before war and relocation, and the father she had after. Trauma is a broken country, one in which the past fractures into the present, stuck like glass shards into skin or sutured together like a tape reel from a thousand fragmented recordings. To live in this country is to traverse borders between self and other that are inherently subjective and constantly shifting, where violence erupts without warning, and where grief, silence, guilt, and shame come to feel as natural and as necessary as breathing. It is a place with no beginning or ending, where memories become intertwined. 
and if you are a child, it is a region where any boundary between yourself and your parent is not only unstable, but may ultimately be indefensible. You know, uh, can you talk about that for a second? I also want to maybe maybe relate to this other thing that you wrote, uh, the trauma. Um, is it really a continuous retelling of grief? Uh, you can't ever finish the story. Um, and and uh, in this sense, can you talk about this ex- experience of of trauma and uh, the experience that perhaps uh, the, the refugees, as well as veterans, uh, also f- all, all feel in a sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, on... The trauma, I mean, the theory of trauma and the reality of trauma is that it's the inability to process um, a terrifying memory. It's an inability to basically integrate that memory into your sense of time, your your narrative in a way that makes sense and thus, quote unquote, finishes the narrative. So it allows you to sort of finish grieving. Um, and what this means is that you know the person who's traumatized is often told to kind of go back and talk about that that moment to try to give it a narrative shape, uh, a kind of beginning and end that will somehow put that memory to rest. Um, And in refugee communities, and I think also in veteran communities, that has some interesting side effects. One is to tell stories of trauma might not give you the relief you think it, you know, or you hope that it will. At the same time, it might also create kind of cultures of trauma or, or shared familial stories of trauma. One of the things that I was struck by when I did so many of the interviews with people, um, mostly post-1975 refugees, is that they talked about how their parents would whisper these stories about what had happened to them or, or give them fragmentary tales of some of these really terrifying <clears throat> things that they experienced during the war. And then, of course, you know, when they were being relocated as well, things that children may have not have known about or may not have remembered themselves. And living with their parents' memories, living with these kinds of stories constantly swirling around them, made them feel as if they too had sort of suffered something, if they, as if they too had an access to some frightening kind of grief and violence that might erupt at any time um, that they were constantly aware of and waiting for. Um, and that kind of created a sort of traumatic inheritance for a lot of children. I was struck also by some of the research I did when they were talking about um, traumatized veterans of war is that um, one therapist said, uh, one traumatized veteran will touch basically 10 people in his or her life. And, you know, the f- effects of living with trauma, but the retelling of trauma can affect people in so many different ways. And so the traumatic, the PTSD symptoms that the soldier, returning soldier might experience starts to radiate out into his um, children and their children's children. Trauma is something that scientists have discovered through epigenetic genetic research can be inherited. Um, and in fact, when you look at refugee communities and also in veteran communities, you will see elevated rates of PTSD um, in the children and the grandchildren of, of um, those who have come back with a diagnosis of PTSD. Yeah, that's what amazing to me that uh, trauma really has biological effects. It can physically change uh, the genes and uh, and this trauma can be passed down genetically. Yeah, trauma, when we talk about trauma, it's messy because it is simultaneously a bodily wound that's carried on our genes, but it's also a cultural wound that's carried through our narratives. And so there's two ways we can transmit it. One is, if you want to think of PTSD as a sort of disease, which a lot of people do think of it as, as a kind of communicable disease, um, it's it's something that your children can inherit or your grandchildren, as I said. Um, and they've studied this in multiple um, groups, American Indians, Holocaust refugees, um, those who've experienced um, uh, refu- uh, genocides, you know, throughout European history. And there's many. And then, of course, with the Vietnam War, we have enough longitudinal data to look at both um, the refugees that were relocated as well as the Vietnam veterans. And they're discovering that 40 years on out, those who have um, been given a diagnosis of PTSD, their symptoms didn't necessarily always get better. And there's an elevated rate of PTSD in their communities in general. Um, But it's also communicable through the ways we tell stories. There was was an interesting uh, 
article I you know, came across recently that said that people who had watched the video of the towers falling from 9-11, they were not in New York, they didn't observe it personally, they had no firsthand experience of it, but just watching the videos, they found that some people were displaying symptoms of PTSD 10 years on from that. And I, I you know, it, it asks very difficult questions about how it is that um, the ways in which we talk about traumatic events, how we show them, how we reproduce them through our entertainment, through our narratives, uh, also can affect people over time. Yeah, you write about uh, the Rambo movies. Uh, talk about that a little bit, too. I, I want to get back to these other to two um to trauma and how it spreads. And I'm going to ask the ultimate question, will the Vietnam War ever end? Uh, because it just spreads on in so many different ways. But but talk about the Rambo film. Uh, what were the Rambo films telling us about Vietnam and what were they not telling us? Well, what's fascinating about the Rambo films is that Rambo comes back as, for me, the way I read the film, he comes back simultaneously as a symbol of that war and torture and PTSD. But at the same time, he is, um, when he comes back, this is the first one, First Blood, he is mistaken as one of those long-haired hippies. So he's also mistaken as um, sort of a domestic insurgent. And what's interesting is historically, um, the Vietnam War did play a significant role in the civil rights movement and some of the social movements, the veterans movement, obviously, the women's, the women's rights movement um, that was taking place in America in the 60s and 70s. So um, the idea that he would represent both um, unrest abroad and then unrest at home is fascinating. And he's also this sort of bizarre kind of hybrid of American and then also Viet Cong because suddenly he is out there fighting the jungle um, in the ways that are meant to kind of invoke what he learned in Vietnam, but from his captors, from the people he fought. Um, and when we invoke Rambo, um, I talk about him in the book because I talk about the Rambo sense of justice that we have around um, violent crimes like the ones that Lee committed. We have this idea that someone should just take that person and out person out. And what's also interesting is that every time every time there is a violent crime in the media, people often say, what we need are more people with guns. What we need are more people who are armed, who have a sort of Rambo kind of um, ability to take that person out. And Rambo, to, to harken back to that, is to harken back to um, a legacy of Vietnam about how some people cannot be rehabilitated in any kind of way. Rambo ends up in prison in the movie where he seems to do better than he does in civil society. And, and, and that's a darker inheritance too of the war. When we think about returning veterans of Vietnam, there were a number that did end up in the prison system and repeatedly so. Um, and so it did seem that prison was a way in which if you couldn't rehabilitate um, soldiers with PTSD, prison became a place of de facto housing for them, um, a place where if you can't if you can't treat them, then just put them where you can't see them. And interestingly, that parallels obviously what's happening to Keetan Lee, who's now um, in prison uh, because he was also mentally ill. And our our prison system in general is just flooded with the mentally ill. So, you know, to invoke Rambo is to sort of bring up this cascade of issues that the Vietnam War raises for us um, and and is a metaphor and a symbol of still. Yeah. And um, and as I'm reading your book, I'm, I'm thinking we, we treat it so individually as the one person who has mental illness. And so this person needs to be put away or this person needs to be stopped or, or whatever. But we're as you writing in the story, we're missing that huge picture that we're so interconnected, whether biologically or cultural trauma, uh, that the effects just continue to ripple throughout uh American society, but also, of course, Vietnamese society, which hardly we ever talk about. Yes, this is true. I mean, getting back to your earlier question about will the Vietnam War ever end? Yeah. Um, uh, in some ways, no. And I think what's interesting is you could there are people who would argue that the Civil War in the United States has never ended, too. I mean, there mm. are long -term economic, cultural dynamics that are still in play, um, powerful 
forces that we always forget about until they rear their head up as you know as we talked about in Charlottesville um, and continue to 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 remind us about the powerful ways in which that war has never been settled in our neither in our history books nor in our imagination and um, I think you know one of the things that I kept thinking about when writing this book is why is it that we want to believe that wars are over you know who does that benefit and of course it benefits um, it benefits all of us and politicians because eventually we do have to accept the fact that we may have to end up in armed conflicts. And if we have um, if we have evidence and we have theories around trauma that show that, in fact, wars have extraordinarily long term cultural consequences that we cannot control, of course, it's going to make us far less likely to want to engage in wars, to want to engage in these kinds of conflicts, even when they may be necessary. Um, and also it, it's dangerous. I mean, I also thought that personally, one of the difficulties of talking about this research was that it also runs the risk of pathologizing individuals. You know, I think um, the other, the flip story of, of trauma and the, that I've been telling is that the bulk of returning veterans, in fact, were not traumatized. And the bulk of uh, refugees that fled Vietnam also did not display long-term PTSD um, symptoms. So the story on both sides could also be written as one of resilience. Um, but you can't ignore the fact that there is still a significant population that suffers from these things, and they have an impact um, historically as well. When we create narratives of war, we usually try to create reasons why we went and we try to make it look like we were justified in doing everything that we did. Um, and Vietnam continues to remind us that that might not have been the case. And this is another example, I think, when we think about the PTSD and the long-term effects of war, we have to think about the ways in which we sacrificed a lot of people for something that might not have been worthwhile in the end at all. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. My guest is Paisley Rechdahl of the University of Utah. She's the author of The Broken Country. It's a book-length essay on cultural trauma and the intergenerational legacies of war. In 2012, a young Vietnamese man named Kit Tan Lee walked into a downtown Salt Lake City megastore, purchased a knife, and began stabbing white male passersby in the parking lot. Purportedly, in revenge for the war in Vietnam, a war that, due to Lee's age, he had never immediately experienced. Her book opens up the question of trauma, crime, and the continuing legacy of Vietnam. More to come. Stay with us. Listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schack. My guest is Paisley Rechdahl, author of The Broken Country on Trauma, Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. You know, when you talked about um, the, the uh, pathologizing the individual and, and many, and it could be a story of resilience. But there's also a sense, uh, and I, th I, th I think you wrote about this, that the that the individual, such as um, Ketan Lee, um, actually voiced a collective experience, um, and, and and paid, in a sense, paid that price for it. I mean, he, in one sense, he told the truth, um, and his actions were were awful and they're violent. We don't. I'm not. I'm not want to, um, you know, excuse or or credit that in some way. But there's a sense in which sometimes it's the ones that we cast as mentally ill or sometimes the prophet. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a tricky thing to talk about. I mean, I, I compare him to, um, another kind of random stabbing, the, the man who stabbed, um, Samuel Beckett, one of the guys who was stabbed in my book. Uh, I talked to Kel um, Kelton Barney refers repeatedly to the man who stabbed Beckett. And it, it, 
in both cases, um, that man and then also Lee are themselves um, individuals, but they do sort of, um, I think in Lee's case, I think you're right, there's a way in which he starts to represent or at least speak for, try to symbolize in his language um, the recognition of an experience that often gets swept under the rug. Um, and what that experience was is kind of also open to interpretation. I mean, I think that the people I spoke to um, who were post-1975 refugees, many of them said that it wasn't necessarily relocation itself that that caused the, some of the stresses in their families. It was the experience of being in America and trying to assimilate that that seemed to bring out some of the most difficult and dark stories in their families too. And so one question um, we might want to ask as well is, is, is this a story about war? Is this also a story about American assimilation and the kind of subtle but violent process that, um, that takes place there too in cultures? And in that sense, Lee does speak for a group of people, which is to say, when he's saying, why did you kill my people? He might be talking about a kind of cultural erasure there. Why is it that you don't want to see me? Why are you making us invisible? And that is something that I think a lot of the people I spoke to felt that somehow um, their experience has been erased. And I have a lot of friends who are Vietnamese American. And what's interesting is when the Ken Burns documentary came out and we've been all watching it and talking about it online, a lot of them voiced some similar complaints, which is once again, you know, this is a massive war that relocates nearly a million people. And it's, you know, that relocation is treated in four minutes, um, of mm -hmm. film time. And so that sense of constantly not quite being in the public eye and yet having paid a tremendous price for actions that America took abroad, I think is something that creates this, this, this long simmering anger and frustration. I'm speaking with Paisley Rekdal. She's the author of The Broken Country on Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. At the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about the memorial in Hanoi, uh, an artwork perhaps of airplane parts uh, created perhaps by the Viet Cong to, to make a statement of some kind, but you found something quite deeper uh, in that symbol, um, uh, in that artwork. It's the cover of your book. And I was wondering, you also spoke uh, later on about the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Could you contrast those two memorials and what, the, what you discovered that they meant for you? The memorial in, in Hanoi, one of the things that's so sh striking about it is that I mean, it is composed of actual plain parts. And in that sense, um, it goes against all the things that I had grown up seeing with war memorials. First of all, we never make war memorials out of the actual material of war, um, because to do so, I think, would be pretty grotesque. And there is something grotesque about that. To look at all of these plain parts is to be made intimately aware that somebody died to get that piece. Um, and somebody else died on the ground um, as well. I mean, so that it represents a death in both ways. And that sort of surprised me because, um, you know, the, it, it, it ended up, and I think more accidentally than deliberately, being almost a dual memorial. Um, you were looking at the deaths of French and American soldiers, but you were also thinking constantly of the death of the, the Vietnamese that they were shooting at as well. Um, I am the daughter of a non-combat veteran of Vietnam and the niece of... Um, a combat veteran of Vietnam who had been, you know, basically nightly shelled while, you know, being stationed in, in parts of North Vietnam for different conflicts. And um, so I, I was aware maybe because of that, you know, the, that, that, that mortal meaning. And when I, but when I look at the Vietnam veteran memorial that Maya Lin created um, at the end of the book, I was also struck by the ways in which there was something similar she was trying to achieve, I think, to that first that first piece in Hanoi, which is the question is always, how do you represent war? Like, what is the representation that's going to make us feel like we we actually touched or were touched by war's terrible sublime um, and its its magnitude and its impact? Um, in Maya Lin's case, what she wanted to do was to create a sculpture, not a sculpture, but basically uh, a monument where all of the soldiers' names would have been put back in the order of the, the, their death, like when they died. 
that of course was almost impossible to do. But the idea of trying to put people back into the time frame of war, I think is was what she called it. And I don't think it's dissimilar to what the Vietnamese sculptor was thinking when he assembled these uh, plane parts together. There is a way about of trying to get a reader to enter the time frame of war and to really see it and to become intimate with it. Uh, Maya Lin's uh, memorial, I think, is so so amazing because you can have a tactile relationship with it. People go up, they touch the names, they rub the names on pieces of paper. They can they have a connection. They look for the people that they lost. And it's a very different kind of memorial than we're used to, where normally we're encouraged to stand apart from it, to look up at it. They're usually glorious, you know, and representational figures of soldiers coming back from the war. And um, hers is abstract in a way that I think that the plain parts became abstract. It was a way of of showing us not not um, the propagandistic way of looking at that war or the historical way we should look at that war, but just trying to get us aware of what we lost in that war. You write, uh, the stories and memorials we create around war do not honor the women who were raped, uh, the children who were bombed, uh, but the soldier who died in service to their countries. We ask the rest to forget. So uh, in almost all of our memorials, it, it really ultimately still is about blind patriotism in some level, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, war memorials are always a fascinating blend of elegy, public elegy, but then also political propaganda. Um, I can't even, most war memorials are there to give us a context. Why was the war fought? Who did we fight? What were the values that were at stake? And I think it's very interesting that, um, and I don't write about this in the book, but you know, I think it's very interesting that Maya Lin's memorial was joined later on, you know, two and a half years later by the three soldiers um, figure by Frederick Hart, where he depicts a black soldier, a Latino soldier and a white soldier um, from Vietnam coming, you know, they're coming out of battle or going into battle. And the idea there was to suggest that, um, you know, America, America is a diverse land. Um, and we fought in some ways for unity and diversity and um, a kind of liberalism and, and our armed forces, you know, represented that. Then that's a very ahistorical kind of, I mean, it may be factually true that it was a very diverse group of soldiers who fought, but it is up to debate whether or not they were actually fighting for racial diversity. But I think that there's, um, you know, that, that, that move is very classic when we think about war memorials. We oftentimes try to make it look as if the war was fought for good values in order to assimilate, I think, the public to those values. Um, they're, they're meant to reflect who we think we are as much as anything else. And so, I, you know, when, we're, when we don't show raped women, we don't show the Vietnamese refugees, and we don't show those children left behind, that's because it's morally inconvenient to us, right? I mean, at some level, we don't want to acknowledge that we did as much as we did over there because we're trying to rescue something of ourselves, some image of ourselves that we think we hold dear as being American. So how far can truth go? That's what I want to know. Uh, how, how, how deep can the human go in terms of being honest about the trauma that we experience and that we share with others? I mean, is, is there a way of healing um, at the end of the day? Well, that is the question. And I, I, you know, this is the thing that I'm frustrated with my, with my book as well, which is that I, I point out there's the paradox, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can answer that. Um, because the paradox about represent, representing war, trauma, representing our lives to anyone is that um, on the one hand, we're always kind of not getting it right. Um, so for instance, with uh, a, P, a memory of PTSD, oftentimes what we're doing is constructing a narrative that makes that memory make sense in ways that I think the person experiencing that event, it's not necessarily truthful to that experience entirely. Um, violence erupts sort of out of nowhere. Um, things happen and seem absurd and don't seem to have a reason. 
And yet narrative asks us to make a reason. Narrative asks us to think in terms of protagonists and antagonists. Narrative th makes us think about the beginning and the middle and the end. It makes us want to tell a story in which something is resolved. But I don't think PTSD is something that is essentially resolvable. That traumatic memory resists that at that level. So when when we're trying to be truthful, when we're trying to actually give an accurate depiction of our experience in war or an experience in life like this, I think we're asking ourselves to do something that is inherently impossible. And yet, if we don't try to do it, if we don't engage in this, I think we also miss out on something um, very primal and necessary, which is empathy. Uh, we miss out on understanding the consequences of these kinds of actions. We miss out on the ability to see more and more people as Americans, as like us. Um, we miss out on the ability not to repeat the crimes of the past. So while we may fail at representation, I think there's a worse failure in not trying to represent. And you write poetry. Um, is, there, is there a way in which poetry can catch that, that uh, narrative can't? I think sometimes, yes. I think one of the things about poems is that they tend to be, especially lyric poems, lyric poems tend to be, um, they jump through time and space and history very quickly. They're good about that. Um, they tend to focus on refrain lines and repetition. In that sense, poems might actually be able to capture some mimetically, some aspect of what it might be like to have a traumatic memory, be recursive and um, fragmentary. Um, but I think in the end, I don't think that poetry is also the right vehicle because people come to poems also hoping to be healed a lot of times, hoping to have some experience shown to them in a way that makes it beautiful and okay. And poems might not, might not give you what you want in that sense either. Um, in the end, I, I, I don't think there's any genre that actually can do what it is we really long to have done for us. And yet all of them offer opportunities and different types of opportunities to come closer to other people and to ex understand their experience. I have uh, one, one more question for you. I'm speaking uh, with Paisley Rechdahl, the author of The Broken Country on Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. And one of those legacies is in the way in which... Uh, uh, what the phrase is, American society, uh, wh whoever, whoever's pulling some strings wants us to remember things. Um, and we talk about Vietnam, Vietnamese refugees and since being co-opted, uh, the nail salon business uh, grown into a multi-billion dollar industry by uh, immigrants and refugees that you write, but is told in a particularly American way by the story of the uh, actress uh, Tippi Hedren, you know, of the... Of, uh, the Birds, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's movie. Talk about the significance of, of 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 that aspect and who gets of narrative and who gets to tell it for whom. Yeah, the Tippi Hedren story I find fascinating, and it really made the rounds um, a couple of years back. It was it was on everybody like everyone's news channel um, to talk about this multi billion dollar industry, the nail industry that is. Largely, you know, it's it's a Vietnamese industry now, practically, and and Vietnamese uh, Amer American women have just done a phenomenal job, and yet oftentimes they trace it back to Tippi Hedren going and visiting a refugee camp, and it's her quote unquote long glossy nails that spark the curiosity of a couple of Vietnamese women in the refugee camp. She promises to teach them how to give a manicure, and suddenly they're off and going, and. While it's not incorrect that, of course, Tippi Hedren was in that refugee camp and did have these conversations and did do this, um, the way in which we frame that story as uh, a, a story about Tippi Hedren is the thing that, you know, allows for this to happen at some point is very consistent with the ways I think we we talked about relocating um, Southeast Asian refugees. Um, the idea was that it was our American humanitarianism and largesse that uh, made for this um, and made this all possible. And so if Vietnamese Americans are economic successes on our shore, well, it's because we gave them that opportunity. You know, one could ask the question, well, why, they are, why were they on our shores to begin with, right? But, um, you know, it's another way, I think, to morally rescue a war in which I think many Americans, most Americans probably felt that um, America had been morally compromised by its actions abroad. So there's lots of ways in which we 
you know, change stories of, and, and I've seen this in, you know, we can see it with African-Americans, we can see it with Southeast Asian refugees, Asian-Americans in general. There's a lot of ways in which um, American capitalist success stories often uh, basically go back to reifying or supporting the idea that it's America um, as a space of economic opportunity and advancement and um, generosity that allows people to thrive there. And it's rarely the story of, or primarily the story of the ingenuity and the need of different um, other ethnic groups to survive. Um, so that's one of the things that I found really fascinating. But, you know, that's sort of the, I, I was, as I was writing this book, I was thinking that's kind of the beauty of capitalism, because no matter whatever happens, capitalism always gets to win. <laughs> it always uh. gets it always gets to say, see, you know, we made it possible for people. Um, at the same time, you could easily say, well, maybe this is, <laughs> this is not, this might've been capitalism's doing, who knows. And that's what I was getting at, I guess, would, uh, though, who's pulling the strings there? Who's making yeah. the, the narrative, who has the power to shape the narrative in the media for all of us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all are subject to that narrative, right? Because all of us are held to the standard of what it means to be, um, a successful American. And the assimilation story, we often think of that as something that only is supposed to affect the immigrant, um, the immigrant onto our shores. But uh, oftentimes that, that assimilation narrative is held up, I think, just for native-born Americans too. You have to be successful financially. You have to be of a certain ethnicity. You have to be ideally male. You have to be um, you know, a certain kind of religious background and stuff like that to be sort of visible and seen. And so when we think about the assimilation narrative um, having negative effects on Southeast Asian uh, communities, we might also want to say, how is it this, this American dream narrative has wounded Americans in general? You know, and that just reminded me of another thing I wanted to point out, because you did conclude your interviews uh, or continue your interviews with the victims of um Ket uh, Lee's um, violent attack, uh, the two people who were stabbed, and that aspect of, of the one of the victims who had the brain injury from the knife attack uh, could also was also in a position where he felt pressured to get back to work, <laughs> that there is something there, that, uh, that you found a real connection between uh, all of these people who were victimized, in a sense, by a trauma much larger than themselves. Yeah, I was really struck by Tim DeJulis's, um interviews because he had been he had been stabbed in the head. It caused traumatic brain injury. Uh, he had to go through such a long period of of rehabilitation. And the end result was that um, basically he wasn't suited to do his job. His job was to work with words, um, to write uh, technical manuals as quickly as possible. And what he kept saying, and he, what really frustrated him. Uh, was that everyone kept saying, don't worry, we'll get you fixed up and you can go back to work as soon as possible. They didn't say ever, um, according to him, we'll get you fixed up and you can sit and you can process what happened to you. It was never about that. It was about getting him into the workforce as fast as possible. And, you know, what's fascinating is that, you know, I come from an Asian American background myself and the idea of people's usefulness being utterly tied to their labor potential is something that has always haunted and dogged the Asian American community. And it was something I think that also very much dogged the Vietnamese American community too, or the Vietnamese community once they arrived, this idea of how do we get them to, to assimilate as fast as possible, in particular, how do we put them to work as fast as possible? And um, one of the reasons that Vietnamese Americans probably were also made largely invisible is that their success story didn't unfold and has not unfolded along the same lines the Chinese, Japanese, and Korean American success stories, in part because you get a lot of people who, with less education, with no economic resources, where are they going to go but in low-paying factory jobs? Um, and probably unsurprisingly, a lot of the young men uh, were basically put adrift. And so many of them did, in fact, go into gangs. One of the highest um, Asian uh, ethnic groups in our prison system is our Vietnamese. So um, this idea of having them be useful by being workers is something that I saw a parallel with, not just with Tim, but with the Vietnam veterans returning and also the Vietnamese. 
My guest has been Paisley Rekdal. She's the author of The Broken Country on Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam, a beautifully uh, written book-length essay uh, that uh, certainly made me think about a lot of things I hadn't thought about before, and uh, and that's what I appreciate most. Thank you so much for this work and for uh, spending time with me today. Thank you so much. It was such fun. been listening to Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm thrilled to add another station to the list of stations that carry Progressive Spirit every week. Welcome to KSLW 106.7 in Cottage Grove, Oregon. Catch Progressive Spirit every Saturday morning at 9 and Sunday evening at 8 on KSLW. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, where it all started, along with WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina, Kutztown, University Radio, Kutztown, University, Pennsylvania, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, KZ88, Kabul, Missouri, Alameda Community Radio, KACR, Alameda, California, and WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station or favorite commercial station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. Find it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you go. And and if you do listen, uh, it really helps to give me a thumbs up or press the dot that says, wow, this is a great podcast or comment and say lovely things. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in the beautiful Northwest, Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schott. Be wonderful.